Welcome to Leadership in the Digital Age with Professor Vijay Gurbakhsani, Director of the Center for Digital Transformation at the Paul Mirage School of Business at UC Irvine. Join us for thought-provoking conversations with executives on the forefront of digital transformation. This is Brian Bellendorf, who is the Executive Director of the Hyperledger Foundation. Um, like I said, he knows more about open source than pretty much anybody. Uh, I'm high billing for you. Uh, Thank you. Um, we actually met when we both spoke at the Natural, uh, National Retail Federation, and I was sort of really awed by the work he's done throughout his career, not just at the Hyperledger Foundation. Um, you know, I actually read some work that was done about sort of what he did with Apache. Um, Back when dinosaurs roamed the web. Yeah. yeah <laughs> not that long. You know. <laughs> Tyrannosaurus, I don't know what the sequence is, but okay. Small mammals. Um, so let's start with, so everybody's interested in blockchain. Um, there was, you know, people got confused between blockchain and, and cryptocurrencies. Um, and then people thought, well, how real is this? And then the next thing you know, it seems to be everywhere. Right. So, so walk us, let's start with the simple question first, which is, you work for the Hyperledger Project, which is part of the Linux Foundation. What is the Hyperledger Project? Sure. So let me start by explaining what the Linux Foundation is. And the Linux Foundation is a 16-year-old 501c6 industry consortium of over 1,000 different businesses uh, and tens of thousands of developers working together to build software products used by tens of millions of developers uh, all across the world in projects ranging from originally it was the Linux operating system, then it was the use of Linux inside of automobiles and telco switches and other high-intensity environments, then it was cloud computing, and software-defined networking, and a whole long list now of projects, including now Hyperledger, focused on the blockchain space, where uh, what the Linux Foundation, Linux Foundation does is serve as a neutral ground for the coming together of developers, building these tools, take that Brownian chaotic motion of patches and feature improvements and bug fixes and all this, and turn it into enterprise-quality code, code that enterprises can deploy without batting an eyelash, and then do the economic development, basically build, make sure that these projects are sustainable by uh, encouraging companies to, to go and incorporate it in their products, and then doing all the essential bits to help them build products and services on top, in coordination of marketing messages, presence at third-party events, running uh, our own events, that sort of thing. And so Hyperledger was started three years ago when a group of companies uh, within the Linux Foundation and a few more that hadn't yet engaged with the open source community. Uh, so that list included companies like IBM and Intel and uh, Hitachi and Fujitsu and, and, and Linux-related startups uh, to some new players in open source like JP Morgan uh, and Blythe Masters Digital Asset Company and uh, a number of others and said, Let's see if we can take what really is what most people feel is the most distinctive part of the, the, the Bitcoin stack or the Ethereum stack, which is this underlying blockchain technology, and see are there other ways to deploy it, other types of use cases than uh, you know, portable digital money right, that we could apply this to that would potentially go and solve some real problems. So JP Morgan did that, recently announced their crypto coin, I forget what they called JPM it. JPM coin. JPM yes. coin, thank you. Um, so how, what is that? What is a JPM Morgan coin? What is it intended to do? 
Well, let, 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 rewinding back a little a bit, because the, even the word blockchain is pretty uh, uh, genericized and politicized at this point. Um, uh, but what a blockchain is, is a distributed ledger. It's as if, uh, you know, let's say all of us in this room decide we're going to have a picnic on Saturday, right? So one of us starts a Google Doc, <laughs> shares it with everyone in the room, and we say, okay, feel free to add, you know, whatever you want to bring potluck to the pit picnic, right? So all of us open it up, and we're starting to edit, and we start writing over each other's edits, or somebody says, I'm allergic to bell peppers, so nobody bring anything with bell peppers, right? You know, if suddenly it starts to become this uh, chaotic, amorphous mess, right? Well, that's fine if we're all we're doing is planning a picnic, but if we're trying to run an economy here, uh, uh, that kind of chaos isn't really good. But we still need what a Google Doc does for everybody in this room, which is serve as a system of record, serve as a kind of database, right? It's a ledger. Uh, it's a place where we can record things and know everyone will see it. Uh, and actually, in many cases, what you want is something you can record to that can't be withdrawn, that can't be pulled back. So it becomes a history, right? It becomes a ledger of our activities with each other. Um, and that's what uh, is at the heart of Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's why you can't spend the same Bitcoin twice because there's a record of, of transfers from one party to the next. Uh, and it turns out that that's useful in non-Bitcoin circumstances. If you're trying to track payments between two JP Morgan account holders, they can wait to get it cleared through JP Morgan system, or they can prove to each other, hey, I've got so many JPM coins which map to US dollars, I'll just transfer them to you because you're also a JPM account holder. Now, that's one way it can be used. It could be used uh, by as a replacement for projects, uh, uh, organizations like SWIFT, Right. Uh, uh, so instead of messaging that uh, you're going to send $10,000 from one bank account to another, instead have that settled immediately on a, on a distributed ledger. Now, SWIFT themselves are, ex are experimenting with blockchain technology, and the hope is that it gets it from three days to send a bank wire to five minutes to get that cleared and settled. Uh, but you can use it for all sorts of other applications. Yeah, when I read the JP Morgan thing, they were talking about how if you buy and sell stock, the, the, the settlement process actually takes days, and this way you can settle pretty much instantly. But, you know, we, we talk about blockchain like it's one thing. Uh, and obviously you said it's a distributed ledger, but when you look at the Hyperledger website, I mean, you've got all these frameworks and all of the tools. Now, obviously we're not gonna get into all those in details, but what are the major components of, if you wanna put a blockchain-based trust system in place, like we're talking about the IBM Food Trust this morning, we'll get back to that, but what's the, um, what are the essential modules that you need yeah. to make this all happen? But you're right about the, the use of that word. Sometimes it's used without any article in front of it, which makes it sound like a religion, right? right. Oh, I see, you've gotten into blockchain. Um, I, uh, sometimes the definite article is used before that, the blockchain. Right. It reflects an earlier kind of worldview, which said, well, all we need is the Bitcoin blockchain, and everything will just be written to that. And, and that worldview has certainly been backtracked uh, and to one where it says there will probably be lots of these distributed databases, these, these ledgers that might be sector-specific. Uh, they might be... Uh, use case specific. Uh, uh, hopefully they'll span geographies and, and borders because uh, that's what this technology is really good at is building these kind of cross-border jurisdiction, multi-jurisdiction kinds of systems. But we probably won't all aggregate to one big one that everything flows into, but have a lot of them out there. And so if you saw that three years ago, and I, a lot of people did, um, reasonably you'd say, well, if we're going to get economy of scale, it's not going to come from one network. At least let's try to use the same software underneath, right? So some of the projects at Hyperledger, and we've got 
12 different products, if you want to think of them that way, uh, but they're really communities building code. Um, a couple of those are projects like Hyperledger Fabric, Hyperledger Sawtooth, Hyperledger Aroha, which are tools for running a blockchain network. So if you and I and 30 people here were on this network, we'd each stand up a, a node running this software. We'd all point it at a common certificate authority, basically, to badge us in. And then we start writing transactions with each other onto this common ledger. Um, other tools there are about uh, implementing support for the Ethereum uh, uh, smart contract language called Solidity. Mm -hmm. Others are particular to distributed digital identity. Uh, and then, you know, it's kind of a nerd's paradise. So there's a lot of utilities and scripts and, and ways to just make dealing with all this software easier. So let's, let's talk a little about smart contracts. What are those? So smart contracts are a way, you know, I described this prevention of double spend. Oh, no, I didn't yet. Um, so uh, on a network like this, where we're sharing this common system of record, I, I, it's easy to implement, and this is what the cryptocurrencies depend upon, a way to ensure that a coin is only spent once, or a digital asset is only transferred once, right? Uh, so I, I, that, that rule is called prevention of double spend. But there's other types of mechanics, other types of uh, physics that we might want to implement on a, on a system. Some of them might be system-wide, you know, you want to make sure that a case can only be closed once two or th three other certain uh, conditions are met, uh, or a, uh, uh, an insurance claim can only be transferred from one party to another once some other uh, uh, kind of sign-off happens, right? Those are things you can write as smart contracts into the system. You could also model bespoke agreements, things like, you know, an insurance claim, for example, or an insurance policy between a farmer and an insurance company that says if there is a drought in the California Central Valley at the end of the growing season, it's determined there's a drought, then the insurance company pays the farmer $10,000. And a smart contract might be something that runs, is distributed out to the network. Uh, every node runs it at the end of the growing season on a certain day. They all consult weather.com or some commonly agreed upon oracle in this space. Uh, and if it turns out, yes, precipitation was less than eight inches or something like that, then the farmer, uh, uh, then a, uh, an entry is written to the blockchain recording the transfer of $10,000 from the insurance company to the farmer. Now, that might seem silly, right? The easy way to do that is just have the insurance company pay the farmer. But what if that insurance company is not Allstate or somebody, you know, highly reputable, but is... Uh, an investor, somebody you don't know, somebody who doesn't has, have as much reputation. This is a way to address, perhaps even eliminate counterparty risk in a lot of the transactions in the world. And there are people who say, had we had these systems during certain other financial crises, we might have uh, perhaps had less of the irrational exuberance uh, that gets talked about out there, uh, but perhaps also less of the chaos that comes from a disorderly unwinding of positions and markets. So what you're really talking about, if I were to sort of put one word to describe, is really establishing trust between a whole variety, a whole range of parties who may not know each other. That's right. And may not even, and so trust through transparency. Well, it's like Reagan said, trust but verify. Trust but and verify. And so it's a way of like bringing that kind of verification of a lot of things that ordinarily you have to take for granted, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, without naming any particular companies, because I don't know, some of you might all work for them or whatever, but like within almost every sector in technology, there are these 800-pound gorillas at the center. Most of them do totally fine with the charter of being the trusted third party in so many of our transactions. But, you know, I come from a school that, you know, uses the phrase power corrupts, right? And absolute power corrupts, absolutely, right? And in some industries, I mean, it might be fine for microblogging or sharing cat photos, but for bank records, it's kind of not acceptable to have, you know, a, a central party that owns all the data and could change it in imperceptible ways. And that's what this technology is designed to avoid. So, that, so, so that's really powerful, right? Because 
when you and I spoke, one of the things we talked about was a database in theory can pretty much do everything. Absolutely everything. That no, a block I could sit here and give you any use case for blockchain tech, and you can always answer back to me. Couldn't you do that with a centralized database? Would it? And, and the answer is always yes. It'll always be faster and cheaper and easier to upgrade. And by almost every IT metric, it'd be a better system. That would be true for Bitcoin as well. If right. somebody just ran a Bitcoin.org that kept track of everybody's Bitcoin balance, you could have millions of transactions a second and be happy with it. You wouldn't have all this energy consumption. But who runs that server? Right, and that's the whole point of doing Bitcoin like that. It's the whole point of doing some of these other networks as well, where you tease this apart. You still want a governance model sometimes. True. This is what's different with many of the major. But it's so counterintuitive, right? Because our entire lives are sort of based on trusting, like a person we know, an individual, a central authority, and this is almost the opposite, right? This trust through trust to verify, but we need a different word for trust that is non-optional. Right? Like, there's a difference, I think, between trusting parties because you can and you have a reasonable choice and trusting parties because you have to. And right. uh, I don't know if anyone follows the Edelman Trust Survey. This I do. Is a, okay, this is a trust survey that's done on a, well, I think it's been going for 20 years or something uh -huh. like that. And they survey consumers on their perception of their trust in institutions, in brands, in occupations. And uh, they have found pretty much a straight line decline in the level of consumer trust in everything from doctors to lawyers to Coca-Cola and IBM to, you know, like anybody out there. Do you remember where professors, do you remember where professors were on that list? I don't. I hope, I think higher than lawyers, but uh, we'll see. Um, uh, you know there's no information in that statement, right? Uh, uh, <laughs> higher than bankers, for sure. I'm sorry. Uh, but so yeah, that this is the world that we live in today, one where we're not quite sure if we can trust the system if, or if we can trust individuals who we're, we might not feel like we have the choice to trust. So let's talk about a couple of very specific instances. So let's talk about IBM Food Trust. I, I, I'm sure you know a lot about it, but what did they uh, said? So, so they've obviously got a blockchain platform that's, I guess, because I know I remember reading it's Hyperledger Fabric that that is built on. Um, what's the mechanics of that? How is that playing out so far? Right. So, system, so Food Trust Network has about 70 different companies that have been brought into the system. Um, some of them are anchors that you know, like Walmart. Uh, there's a couple of other big brands that I don't think have been announced yet, so I don't want to give away anything. But it's a lot of tier one suppliers. Uh, uh, and the first kind of uh, uh, killer app for it uh, so far has been traceability of uh, leafy green vegetables. Right. In fact, uh, uh, it sounds like Walmart has, has asked their tier one suppliers to commit it's to being on this blockchain it's before the end of the year. Right. right. And this is uh, uh, a shot at, at being able to answer that question. When E. coli shows up uh, in a supermarket somewhere, how do you avoid having to ban all uh, leafy greens from California for the season, which is the response that you get now, which is billions of dollars worth of product thrown away. Um, uh, and uh, and, and uh, so that the way that that goes is they, they uh, said, IBM said, well, here's what we think should be built. Let's start talking to our customers that are in that space, get them to talk with, uh, with themselves and with us as a consortium. Let's figure out some early use cases. Let's run some pilots. Those pilots turned out well. Um, in some cases, IBM would run the nodes on that network for you in their cloud. In other cases, they uh, say, you know, if you're Walmart and you're able to run these systems, you probably want to be able to run them. You can run them on-prem. You could run it in your choice of other cloud provider. Uh, and so that network grows. And, and with all of these things, you know, at some point they bootstrap, right, with, say, you know, three nodes or four nodes you want to get going. Um, uh, 
uh, but the, the long-term goal for these is that they are um, uh, multilateral in every way, right? So uh, housed on multiple clouds, uh, serviced by multiple IT providers, um, just enough to give the participants in that blockchain a sense of control and sovereignty over their node so they know what's true and what's not, right? But like any other platform, at some point you have to reach critical mass and hope this thing becomes self-sustaining on its own. Yeah. Do you think it's well on its way? Um, oh, yeah. So there's over 100 that we know of uh, production networks out there now like Food Trust Network. Not all of them have achieved that degree of adoption just yet, uh, but that is in production, and, there, and there's others uh, all over the world. There's a production network in China of uh, banks uh, doing trade finance between them that uh, do about $150 million a, a day, uh, US dollars a day in letters of credit, which is a, a tiny part of the entire trade finance market, but it's it's enough to like cause people to take it seriously and go, there's something here. Um, uh, there are uh, traceability networks there out there in diamonds, in rice, in electronics, in uh, rare earth metals. Um, and you know, a lot of this still has to be proven use case by use case because some markets, you know, are happy to trust a central provider or they've set up somebody to run that central server as a co-op, right? Uh, in equities markets, you have a company like DTCC, uh, who is extremely well trusted by the trading community. And even they realize to stay ahead of the market, they need to themselves be experimenting with blockchain technology. So it's uh, it's something I think will we'll spread across, but you're right, each of these networks has a bootstrapping challenge. So, so if you were to abstract away from all of these examples, that you haven't cited them all, of course, but you know of them all, what are the sort of the key features? If I was thinking about starting, building such a network for something that I'm trading, what are the essential features that say, okay, this is blockchain is a solution I should look at very seriously? Right. Um, it's when you have an industry-wide challenge um, around uh, tracing of something, right? Uh, I, it's when you have payments that flow back and forth between parties without necessarily, you know, an 800-pound gorilla kind of aggregating it all already, because that's awfully hard to remove from a market once they get in there. Um, uh, but I, uh, where you have this kind of diverse ecosystem and you want to support that diversity because it gives everyone optionality top to bottom. Uh, uh, it's it's where you have you know a reasonably high level of uh, IT competency already out there, at least in a critical mass of organizations. So in healthcare, for example, they've picked up this technology. Not as many uh, have operationalized it, but there's a few like Change Healthcare that has a, a, a health in insurance claims routing uh, platform doing 50 million transactions a day now on it. Um, so I, I, and it needs to be companies who. Uh, uh, right now are still willing to take a bit of a risk, willing to spend some IT dollars understanding how the technology works, uh, participating in pilots, realizing that's the only way to really know what's going to be appropriate, appropriate or not is to get your hands dirty uh, with the code. So prepare your questions. I have one last question for Brian because you know when I started this conversation with you, I was, I have to confess, a little unsure of where all of this would go and I was leaning towards this is more of an infrastructural technology where yeah, we'll use some level of transaction processing. We'll bring in more trust into the system. But the more I talked to you, I walked away with exactly the opposite sort of impression, which is this is a fundamentally transformative technology. Uh, it can really change sort of the, it can democratize in so many different ways. What are your thoughts about sort of the, I mean, assuming things go well, what's what's the potential of this? You know, I'm I'm an open source guy. I guess I built my career off a lot of like being involved in open source projects, trying to figure out how to build that stuff, uh, and then spent time. Work, I worked at the Obama White House in the Office of Science and Tech Policy on open government and open data, and and so like you know those four letters op, uh, open mean a lot. But for me. Um, 
blockchains aren't about making markets more transparent. They're not necessarily about even making them more accessible. For me, the big win is to make them more auditable. Um, so the, the thing that pulled me into this space, uh, away from the cushy VC job I had just before, was land titles in emerging markets. So VC is cushy? That's the first time I've ever heard anybody yeah. describe it that uh, way. Was, uh, the use case was land titles in emerging markets, okay. right? Where in, in certain countries, as they digitized their land record system, inadvertently, it made it easier for a corrupt politician to apply pressure to the admin on that database and change someone's land title, yeah, you know, assign it from the rightful owner to the son of the premier or the son of the vice mayor or whatever, right? And because of that, it actually made it harder for those countries to go and get outside uh, funding to come in and extend mortgages to that community for all the Hernando de Soto wealth at the bottom of the pyramid types of stuff to take on. Um, and it's it was just this crystal clear realization that centralization is a real penalty, you know, that, that having to trust central entities uh, makes for inefficient markets, right? Um, so for me, if we can make the world more auditable, if we can make it harder to be a bad actor out there, not that I'm a law enforcement rah-rah kind of guy, but that I'm, you know, when we when we build markets together, we uh, uh, there are rules that make it more efficient for all of us to be able to do that. Rules that avoid the need for us to have to invest a lot in me learning whether I can trust you or not, right? And, you don't have to invest. We're good. Yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, can trust. I'm me. sure. Uh, but, uh, but blockchain technology should make the cost of having to trust parties less. It should make it more automated for the the, the right actors to be able to get done what they need done, and for the bad actors to not be able to get done. I have learned more about blockchain in the last half hour than all the reading I've done on it, so thank you so much. But let's take a couple of quick questions. There's one right there. You could keep it short. We're running a little bit behind. Um, so in order for a blockchain to be successful, it needs to be adopted by many parties across the industry, right? Potentially including a competitor. So what are some of the um, business incentives that you see that um, enables companies to start a pilot that can potentially be leveraged by its competitors? It's usually easiest when you uh, can talk to any of the existing consortia in any industry, right? So the airline industry, a good party to talk to is IATA, right? Uh, in the telco industry, a good party to talk to is, is the ITU. Um, uh, or to go to Mobile World Congress and talk to, I mean, there's there's consortia all over the place in every sector. And uh, there's some new ones that get started as well, like the Mobi Alliance in uh, the automotive and mobility space. Uh, and these organizations, just almost like a mirror image of us you know, at the software level, their job is to go out and figure out at a, at a sector-specific level, what are the um, uh, use cases that reflect needs across the industry for everybody to level up, uh, 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 use cases that, you know, reward people people with a lot of assets to bring in, but also have the door open to startups and that sort of thing. So it can be hard to figure out how to bootstrap these things, but gen generally you can find intrinsic interests on enough parties to get, get the ball rolling. And then um, all you need is those early adopters to prove just enough value that you start bringing in the mid-stage adopters. And then the, uh, the, the late adopters come in because they have to, because they can't do business with anyone else unless they're on. Well, thank you so much. Let's wrap this session. That was fantastic. Thank you for listening to Leadership in the Digital Age. We hope you will follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at UCI underscore CDT or on our YouTube channel, UCI Center for Digital Transformation. Please be sure to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to give us a review. Until next time.